Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady and Martin Paloma. Welcome into another edition of Mind on My Money presented by Pinnacle Trust. I'm Neil McCrady, Martin Paloma with me today as well. And uh, once again, our uh, good friend and COVID expert, Dr. Alan Jones of UMMC, kind enough to spend some of his Saturday morning with us as we tape this. I've learned to do this on all of uh, the MPW digital platform of podcasts because things absolutely change on the story uh, from, from hour to hour at times. So we are taping this so that when you hear it, you have a frame of reference. We're taping this on Saturday, April the 25th at 10, 18 a.m. Central Daylight Time. So if you hear this on Monday or Tuesday and something crazy has happened and you're like, why didn't they talk? That's why we do not have the ability to look into the future. I think Alan does, but neither, neither Martin nor I have no, that ability. I wish I did because we'd be billionaires. Yeah, well, we'd be so rich. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to get to the show in just a second. First, let me tell you that I'm coming to you from uh, Clark Ford Studios, Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. That number call and ask for Corey Clark. Tell him what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It's really that simple. That's all we ask of you. Uh, if you listen to these family of podcasts, do us a favor. The next time you're in the market for a vehicle, call and at least get a quote. At the very least, it's going to stop you from getting swindled somewhere else. At the most, it's going to get you intrigued about getting into a Clark Ford like I've done. Corey wants to be your truck guy. He wants to be your car guy. He will prove that to you when you make the call. 662-257-1900. And Martin, before uh, we get going with Alan, tell uh, the people out there a little bit about Pinnacle Trust and how they can get in touch with you all. Absolutely. Uh, Alan, thanks for, for coming on the show again. I'm really excited to talk about, uh, you know, the topics today and kind of see where we are. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's, I guess where this is, this is episode will be a special edition, but it'll be about our 40th episode that we recorded. And, um, you know, each time we talk about Pinnacle, uh, you know, we talk about that we want to be the people that kind of walk next to you side by side, helping figure out your um, very specific um, issues as they become, as they relate to your personal finance, whether it's planning for retirement, um, you know, you've, you've come into some money that you didn't have before in regards to, uh, you know, a death, a divorce, uh, or you, you sell a business. Um, you know, we would love to be able to consult with you to figure out what the next steps are, what makes the most sense. Um, and, you know, and right now there's a lot of folks that, and this is unfortunate, you know, that are, that have, uh, 401ks that need to roll over as well. So they've, you know, either been furloughed, lost a job, and you need to figure out what to do with the 401k. Uh, give us a call. The main line number is 601-957-0323. You can email us as well at info at PINNtrust.com. Uh, we're also really active on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can find our pages there at Pinnacle Trust, or you can find us on the Mind on My Money podcast. So, uh, you know, we'd love to be able to help folks kind of sort through this and figure things out. Um, I know it's a real confusing times right now. Uh, you can catch us again, the cell phone, the, excuse me, the main line number is 601-957-0323 and info at PINNtrust.com. Dr. Alan Jones, kind enough, as I said earlier, to be with us. Uh, first of all, Alan, how are you today? Doing well, thanks. Appreciate y'all having me. Indeed. Really, really appreciate you being with us. Uh, this is, I guess, your what, third or fourth, tenth appearance in this last <laughs> 17 months of <laughs> pandemic. I, I don't know. I lose He's count. our most uh, recurring guest and tends to be yeah. our most listened to show as well. So, Yeah, so we'll start there. Let's start with just kind of a baseline of, of um, where we are from what you can see, uh, where we are as a, as a country, where we are as a, as a state, referring to Mississippi, as it pertains to uh, COVID-19 at this point? Yeah, so uh, I'd, I'd say as a country, we're still, we still have a fair amount of activity, although the activity in the uh, largest hotspots, which previously I think everybody knows, kind of New York, uh, Michigan, Chicago, New Orleans, those, the activity there seems to be uh, declining some in terms of deaths. 
Um, in Mississippi, we seem to be at our highest level of activity. We certainly have reported the uh, highest number of cases uh, in a single week uh, and daily highest totals this past week. Our deaths uh, in Mississippi, which is really what the medical community looks at to determine the level of activity, the deaths have seemed to be um, at their highest level and fairly stable. So we don't see a massively increasing number of deaths, but somewhere between 10 and 15 daily deaths is what, we're, uh, what we've seen this past week. So we anticipate that continuing probably into the next week. And then we're hopeful that after that, we may have seen the, uh, the top of where we, uh, where we, sh we will want to be, and maybe that'll uh, start to decline after that. So there's a lot of, the, obviously, the conversation in, in our, uh, certainly in my house, and based on listening to, uh, I've, been, I've been trying this week not to watch as much news, just to kind of listen to different people. I'm trying to listen to experts and not, not listen to the left, not listen to the right, because the, the, the political football game, frankly, is just, it's, I've kind of gotten tired of it. Um, there's a lot of conversation about reopening that word. I was talking to my brother. He lives in Texas. They're basically reopening certain things May 1st, which is uh, six days away as we tape this. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, allowing um, social distancing, but allowing some restaurants to begin to open with social distancing, with cleaning. There's a lot of talk about dentist offices being allowed to open uh, once they once they are compliant with certain rules. What are your thoughts about what's going to happen as we transition into a, uh, a staircase of, of, uh, of reopening, if you will. So I do think that, uh, you know, at some point, obviously, I think we talked about this on the last episode, we gotta, we've got to emerge out of our homes to some level and start to reintegrate into society and figure out how to make this work. Um, and I do think that as we begin to see that the downside, the, the, far side of the hill or the mountain or the peak or whatever you want to call it. The right thing is to try to, you know, figure out how the balance between letting things open back up and, and, um, and, st you know, staying totally locked down. So I, I am, I like the approach that I saw our governor take yesterday. Uh, it's the, mo it's the approach that seems to make the most sense from a population health management perspective. And that is, a gradual reopening so you start to ease restrictions on certain things um, and see how that affects case rate and case fatality rate and uh, and if that goes well um, then you you know ease restrictions even more and so over that kind of phased approach into it you end up at in the last phase of, of having everything opened up. So um, I think that that's the most logical thing to do. And then through those phases, as you see cases pop up or you see hot spots pop up, you hope to have a public health uh, response such that you could identify quickly and isolate and try to minimize the impact of the spread in those areas where there seem to be cases popping up. But you know, the, the long and short of it is we're going to keep seeing these cases for the foreseeable future until we have a reliable vaccine. We're going to keep seeing them. Uh, and, you know, I think as we move into another flu season, we're going to see a lot of co-infection and we're going to see a lot of a lot of increased activity. So we just have to learn how to how to contain it in a, in a logical way. Remind me to uh, circle back to that because I, I was watching a, a show about the coming flu season. We get a flu season every year and how it will be confusing or, or perhaps compound with, with coronavirus. Uh, the other topic that I want to touch on now, and then we can s sort of jump around a little bit. Uh, there was a lot of conversation throughout the country uh, over the course of the past week about universities reopening in the fall. Um, obviously, I'm here in, in Oxford, which is a college town, as we all know, this was supposed to be double decker day. Uh, today would have been a really busy day in Oxford and, and Oxford is pretty dead today. Um, 
there were uh, the, the University of Connecticut Chancellor or President, I'm not sure what title he uses, spoke to a journalism class, uh, I assume um, uh, virtually earlier in the week, and told them that he did not think there would be sports played in the fall. Uh, the pushback against him was so loud and uh, and vitriolic that within about five minutes he was backtracking. He later issued a statement that said, "Here's what I said," but whatever. Since then, there have been a lot of presidents: University of Oklahoma, University of Missouri, uh, Washington State, Purdue, Iowa State. The ones that come to mind that have said pretty emphatically they intend to be open in the fall. They intend to have uh, in-person learning. Uh, opening residential halls, that kind of thing. I'm curious, and again, we're, it's April the 25th, now at 10.28 a.m. Your, your thoughts on what that's going to look like, how realistic that is uh, for, for universities and colleges around the country? Uh, I think it's realistic. I, th I think to some degree uh, there will be some opening. I think that the way people are thinking about opening and what the new normal of open will be, will be different. I think that's, that's the thing that um, we have to really as a society kind of think through. So do I think colleges and universities will be open to some degree? Yes. Do I think it will look exactly like it did uh, before all this? No. And the reason is because if it does, things will rapidly have to close. So you're not going to be able to have, the degree of uh, density in uh, student populations on college campuses as you had before. You're going to have to have a lot different environmental uh, checks in place to try to prevent the spread of the disease from an infected person. Um, so, you know, the, the cafeteria with, uh, with, you know, lines of community spoons and uh, you know, picking things up that multiple other people have touched. That That's just not, we're not going to be living in a world like that yet. Um, you're not going to have dorms full of kids that share, you know, four kids to a room. I mean, there's just going to have to be differences uh, in the way things are done. But I do think we'll, we'll see some degree of opening. And I do think that it's, it's very possible, if not probable, that we will see college sports return in some way. Um, probably delayed, uh, probably looks different in terms of number of people in the stadium and uh, that type of thing, but I do think it's, it's possible and probable that we will see it uh, to some degree. It'll just look different than we knew it before. You and I were talking before we got started, Martin and, and Stacy were, were participating as well but we were talking about a football season that begins and it's open to fans and I told you that it was my opinion and I don't know whether I'm right or wrong it's just an opinion it's my opinion that if you open up stadiums initially they're going to be full I think I think people are going to be so eager to get back into something that uh, they're going to throw caution to the wind and uh, there's going to be a certain political rebellion involved in it. And I think stadiums are going to be full. I painted a scenario and we'll take the SEC out of it. We'll say, we'll say Iowa plays uh, Iowa State in a game in Iowa City and there's 55,000 people in the stands. What, in your opinion, happens after that? Uh, I'd say 10% of the people that attended would be would contract the virus and of those 10 percent you'd probably have 20 percent of them that would be hospitalized and of those 20 percent hospitalized you'd probably have uh you know maybe 30 to 40 percent that would have a bad outcome so you'd have uh you'd have an outbreak and people that you know or people that you know that they know um would contract the virus and somebody's going to have a bad outcome from it. Um, probably uh, not anything like we've known in our lifetimes. Look, this is a lot, this is three times more infectious as the flu, right? So, uh, and, and it's got a higher case fatality rate. Um, so you're going to see outbreaks. Uh, it's just, where's that happy medium where society is okay with those outbreaks and uh, you know, 
everybody's going to have a different opinion. Nobody's wrong. Nobody's right. Uh, it's just a difference of opinion. And the, the thing I can say pretty confidently, though, is if you were to go back to that and have 50,000 people, it's going to affect you, your family, or your friends in some way. Uh, so I did, I, did, I did the math on this, Alan. Tell me if I'm doing the math correctly. So I used the number 55,000 and I times 0.2. So 20% get infected. That's 11,000. And you said up 20% of that of that section would, uh, would be hospitalized. Would be hospitalization. So you're talking 2,200 hospitalizations from the one game in, that we just mentioned, Iowa State, Iowa. If we did that all probably, if we did that all over the country, the hospital the hospital system is overrun at that point. Am I right? So I might have misspoke. I, it's you you I would say 10% get it. So 55,000 would be 5,500 would get it. Of that 5,500, about 20% of them would need hospitalization. So what is that? Uh, 1,100. 1,100, yeah. 1100, yeah. So 1,100 would need hospitalization. You got to remember, though, those 1,100 aren't in one city. They're not in one place. They're going to spread back out, right? And so right. you're going to so you're, you're, you're have you're, – you're not going to over, overrun a, a single hospital. Uh, but I will say this, these, the thing that the general public doesn't quite understand is that these patients are really labor intensive to deal with on a hospital level perspective because of the degree of isolation and uh, the number of procedures we have to go through to maintain safety both to the healthcare workers and to the um, other patients. So let's extrapolate so, that out there. What I was getting at was, okay, so we, we played a game in Iowa City. In that scenario, realistically, we're not playing just one game in Iowa City. We're playing a game in Stillwater, Oklahoma. We're playing a game in uh, yeah. Manhattan, Kansas. We're, we're playing a game in, in West Lafayette, Indiana. We're playing a game in Bloomington, Indiana. We're playing a game in South Bend, Indiana. We're playing a game in uh, Tulsa. We're playing a game in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're playing a game in Baton Rouge. We're playing a game in Oxford. We're playing a game in Starkville. Uh, we're playing a game in, in Itabina. We're playing games all over the place. If that's happening at that same percentage across the country, at that point, the hospital systems are really stressed. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. Now, there's one caveat to that that I think we should keep in mind, and that is if people change the way that they interact with each other as a result of this last six or eight weeks that we've been through, in other words, they do maintain distance. They do frequent hand hygiene. If they're sick, if they're coughing, if they don't feel good, they stay at home. Um, you know, they they don't share utensils and cups and all this. If they do things that we should be, have been doing all along, but as a society we kind of, uh, you know, had some laxity with how we thought, if we do those things, it's going to minimize the impact of those numbers that I quoted. If we go back to the way it was before, then it won't. So if people kind of do their part and say, hey, if I can go to a football game, I'm all right not hugging my friend, shaking hands, and I'll bring my hand sanitizer and put it on, and we won't have – in the Grove, we'll have box lunches, and we won't, you know, have – a bunch of utensils or put our hands in dips and all these other things. Mm, if we do yeah. those things, it's going to minimize the impact of those numbers for sure. Crazy question here. If all the places I just mentioned, um, Iowa city and West Lafayette and South bend and Oxford and Startville and Baton Rouge. If everybody that goes to these games, and I know this is a hyperbolic question, but I'm curious because there's a discussion about mask right now. If the 55,000 people in Iowa city are all wearing a mask, how does that change things? Uh, it, it, it helps. So the deal with masks are the mask is intent. The way the mask will help um, is it keeps the infected person from spreading the virus into the air. Uh, and that helps with the spread. So it, it's not going to, these masks really don't protect the person who is masked that doesn't have the virus. It doesn't protect you from getting the virus. The way it helps in the community is it helps the spread of the from the infected person out into the environment. So if everybody wore a mask, it would, it would have an impact. No doubt about it. It would help a lot. 
just for people walking around either asymptomatic or not knowing that they have it yet and and not transmitting it is that is that kind of yeah i mean yeah so you could be asymptomatic and really the asymptomatic carrier it's a they're they're less infective um they can spread it but it's less it's more the you know martin woke up with a just this little mild kind of pesky cough uh and he doesn't feel bad um but he's got this kind of cough and he goes out and you know he coughs a little bit coughs into his hand he coughs a few times around somebody they get it you know um but if you have a mask on that cough those droplets don't get into the air you're not touching your face your eyes your nose whatever and that all those all those things prevent the infectivity from being as high as it is that makes sense well i have a question too we 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 kind of chatted about it not with you alan but with a previous guest and um and 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 alan i know you and i are are in kind of similar boats we both have um well neil too we both we all three have kids that play you know competitive soccer um you know what do you think it looks like in the fall with with youth sports because i know msa mississippi soccer association um has been following the guidance of U.S. youth soccer, but they just, you know, sent a, a letter out to all of the administrators um, for the clubs around the state saying, you know, hey, we're not going to be back on the field until May 15th. Uh, we're pushing uh, tryouts back to, you know, no sooner than uh, than June 15th. And I just – I'm kind of curious, you know, if – if uh, not that, you know, I mean, I know it doesn't draw the crowds of, you know, 50 and 55,000. Um, but if, you know, our governor kind of uh, Friday said, hey, we're going to still have the no more than 10 people, gatherings of 10 people or more um, is still in place. I mean, you have a full sided soccer team just on the pitch. You've got, you know, 22 players plus three referees is 25 people, um, you know, on the pitch. And then you have coaches and uh, you have kids on the sidelines and then of course parents on the sidelines. Do you think that changes too? I think that, uh, I think we really probably need to follow the guidance of more social distancing and larger groups, not, um, being, uh, congregated. I think that, that, so this is, you know, if I had a crystal ball, obviously I don't know what's going to happen, but if I had a crystal ball, I would say, you know, with this new order, and I'm talking about Mississippi specific, right? This new order goes through May 11th. If things go well, I think you'll see some relaxation. Restaurants will be allowed to open as long as you can, you know, have social distance, uh, you know, no more than 10. Maybe he relaxes that a little bit, but you got to have six feet between the tables, whatever. Uh, I think that, at that point, you'll kind of see gyms and parks and those types of things reopen. I think that the new normal for the sports teams is going to have to be different. The, the you know the coaches won't be able to have the kids congregated together, and um, I think the fans will probably, you know, what I guess is what you initially will see on the sidelines is don't come out on the sidelines, watch from your car, like practices and stuff, and then for games, you know, make sure you're six feet apart. Um, but at some point the, the 10 people is going to have to relax some gotcha. and we're going to have to be tolerant of larger crowds uh, of people. We're just going to have to do it in a thoughtful way. The kids aren't going to be able to shake hands after the games. You know, you're probably going to have coaches with a, you know, a thing, of hand sanitizer hanging around their waist, squirting it in kids' hands all the time, <laughs> just stuff like that, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, actually, but I think that might it, not be I bad for these sports. To, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and the kids are just going to have to learn a new normal, you know. That's all. I mean. The, the, the thing is, is like, I, would, I keep talking about this with, in my own mind. With, with even a soccer ball where you, you don't use your hands except for throwing the ball in. Think about a youth soccer game. How many times the ball goes out? Yeah. I mean, they're always picking the ball up and the kid throws it and he throws it out and then has to go pick it up again and throw it. And the, I mean, the, the, the ball's getting, the, the ball's touching a lot of hands over the course of a game. And then if you talk about football or basketball yeah. or, or anything, I mean, that ball's, I mean, if you stop to think about a football for a minute, 
football's nasty. It is nasty. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, you you stop and just just give a football a few seconds thought, and I'll, yeah. I'll 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 go right here. Every single play starts with the center snapping the ball, and I know we're going to a lot of shotgun stuff and a lot of hurry up no huddle, but there's still a lot of quarterbacks that get under center. Yeah, well, look at uh, look I mean, at the number of referees that touch the ball before the yeah. ball makes it back to the line of scrimmage. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, is we're not going to prevent. You know, you're not you're never going to be able to prevent the spread of it if it's out there and it's moving around and it's on these things. I mean, kids are going to get it. So we're just you know, kids, athletes, whatever, fans. We're just going to have to be you know thoughtful about how we deal with it or how we think about it. And I think the more we can do the logical things, the hand hygiene, the distancing, the, you know, the biggest thing that I see even today, even in the midst of this, the tolerance that people have for going on about their normal routine when they have a cold, a cough, the sniffles, something doesn't quite feel right. People are going to have to recalibrate that sure. a little bit, you know. You know, and but I wonder, no too. Way we're going to we're not going to prevent the spread of it. We're just going to have to try to isolate it when it happens. This is not meant as a caustic question, but I'm curious. Some people are out there thinking, you know, the, the, the college athlete, whether it's a soccer player or a football player is 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. The youth soccer player out there is 10 to 14, roughly. Uh, is it bad that they, quote, get it and get over it? without ever knowing it. And, and I know the answer is they bring it home and they infect families and stuff like that. But in terms of the herd, the herd immunity in some ways, are we, and, and I'm, I'm asking this question almost in a jackass manner, because I know people are asking, I'm just curious. And when I say jackass, I mean, dumb like a donkey. Um, are we, are we better off at some point building herd immunity to it? I mean, there's a lot of talk about serology tests and how flawed they are or aren't and antibodies and that kind of thing. Kind of your general thoughts on that topic after listening to it asked by a complete idiot. No doubt that, you know, the goal for any type of uh, an infectious disease that's highly contagious is herd immunity. Here's the deal with a virus like coronavirus, though, is it's it's think about it like the flu, right? In terms of you don't get the flu one time in your life and then you're immune to it. So because that this the these types of viruses mutate so rapidly you know we're not even sure and and we have some evidence to suggest that once you've had it you can get it again in a short time frame um, there's many reports in the medical literature of reinfectivity among people who have been documented to have had the disease so um, herd immunity is great. That's what we want if it's a virus like polio uh, or smallpox where it doesn't mutate. But in a coronavirus or an influenza virus uh, or one of these more ubiquitous viruses, it's going to mutate and there's not going to be herd immunity until we have the ability to spread her herd immunity through vaccination. Gotcha. And, and I'm going to ask another really stupid question and it, and I really don't know the answer. So don't laugh at me. So the, I know, and maybe it was our first show you were saying, you know, with flu, we have, you know, maybe a couple of months or weeks heads up because it starts in Australia and then, you know, you guys get to see what it looks like or strands wise. So the shots that we get, and here's my dumb question, the flu shots that we get every year is, so that's that's a is that a vaccine shot or is that just and I'm a complete village idiot as it comes to this because I know like you know the kids get their vaccines when they're little kids and then they don't get them anymore but we I get my flu shot every year so is it yeah the flu shot is a vaccine yeah it, it is so the okay. point is is you're you're uh, you're you're trying to give a challenge to the body of a protein on the specific influenza virus that we think will be will be circulating and you um, create antibodies to that part of the virus. And then so when you actually contract the virus, you have antibodies in your system that would attack the virus. Uh, 
the problem is with these viruses that mutate is those proteins change. And so the antibodies that you previously have developed don't attach to the, to the protein and the virus. And okay. so they're, they don't matter. But yes, I mean, it, you could think about, uh, it, they're all vaccines, um, all, everything that you get. Gotcha. Childhood on up, flu, all that. They're all vaccines. Because we had, so Jen and I took Gia to Disney um, on Valentine's Day. Um, we were there for a week. And of course, uh, I got my flu shot. Gia had the mist in her nose. And, um, and Jen ended up on day two with, she had flu, uh, the type A positive. So she spent the whole Disney vacation locked up in the room. Of course, we were in the room with her, uh, but neither Gia nor I ever got sick or showed symptoms is we think that we'll get there with, you know, once, a we have a, a treatment or a vaccine with coronavirus where it'll be, you know, every, every year you're getting your coronavirus shot with your flu shot and you know, people get sick and then you won't, and it'll change strands each year. Is that kind of what the thought process is? Yeah. So we're hopeful with this particular coronavirus where the, the receptor, um, is very, very, that attaches to the epithelial cells in the respiratory tract is very, very specific. So what we're hopeful about with this particular virus, this strain, is that that receptor doesn't change and we can develop a vaccine that is specific to uh, that receptor. And if we can do that, then we can prevent the spread of this particular virus. But there were other coronaviruses. So you remember SARS. Yeah, I was about to ask if SARS and, and MERS are the same way. And MERS. Mm -hmm. So those are different. They attach to different receptors and they cause their, their infectivity was different. So, um, you know, what we're, what the focus is now is for this specific virus in the hopes that that receptor doesn't mutate, but, for in the future, we may see the emergence of another coronavirus or rhinovirus or something that, you know, has, is the same thing. And we will, actually, let me say this, we will see that. We just hope it's, you know, long and far between when we see these things. Gotcha. So with, uh, you know, one of the things that Stacy and I chatted about, um, Gosh, this was last week because we were kind of talking about how this is going to probably change the way, you know, we do business, the way that, um, you know, that we interact with each other going forward as well. But one of the things we were talking about was, you know, you kind of see, or at least I've, when I'm in New York or when I've been in, you know, at Disney and you'll see, um, you know, folks from Asia, whether they're Japanese or, or Chinese, and I, I can't, I'm not going to make a call on which they are, <clears throat> but you'll, you'll see them with masks on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that guys. You'll see them with masks on and, you know, and I'm wondering is a lot. Of, I realize that we said a lot of that is really prevention of if you're sick to, to not spread it. And that, that never caught on here is, but is it because is it, you think it's just because it's a behavioral modification since since a lot of them did experience SARS and you know and some folks in the Middle East did experience MERS so they're you know more willing to wear masks out in public you know in when we're not under you know a pandemic like this you think that changes our behavior going forward too yeah I think I mean I, I personally think for the foreseeable future you're going to see people every time you go out in public in masks and it's probably not necessarily a bad thing um, I mean, right now, I got, I, you know, went to the grocery store two days ago. I'd say seven out of 10 people had a mask on. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in the middle of it. And it'll, that'll cool down some, but you'll still see people wearing masks for the foreseeable future. And like I said, it's probably not a bad thing for society in general. Um, I, I'm not saying it's absolutely necessary because, uh, you know, there are some bad, there are some downsides to masks, particularly cloth masks, um, where, you know, it gets moist and it might actually cause an increase in the risk of getting other types of, uh, viruses. Uh, so it gets to be 
complicated question pretty quickly, but long story short is I think you'll see more masking in public for the next couple of years, at least uh, just voluntarily. I, oh, I do too. Know? I do too. Yeah. yeah. And I've wondered like at Disney and I keep going back to Disney cause it's, that's where we spend most of our vacation money. You know what they were talking about, some of the plans they had for reopening were, um, you know, they were going to have uh, <clears throat> taking temperatures as everyone comes in, um, you know, turning folks away that, that are showing an elevated uh, temperature. And one of the things that I think Neil and I talked about in a previous show as well, but I, you know, for, I think a lot of folks to get comfortable going and back to some type of normalcy and a new routine, you know, uh, that there'll be a lot of corporations or businesses doing things, even if it's just a, you know, a Jedi mind trick, but showing that they're thinking about, you know, safety and thinking about, um, you know, keeping the infection from spreading like wildfire in their place of business. Man, I got to, before you even answer that, Alan, I got to, I got to interject here. I, I've thought about this. This isn't directed at you, Martin, but you couldn't drag me to a place like Disney World right now. See, I'd go I mean, in a heartbeat. It's kind see, of crazy. Isn't, it, isn't it funny how people yeah. are different? All I think about right now, when, when I think about it, and, and I'm for reopening, all that stuff. All I'm saying is when I think about a place like Disney, all I think about right now is all the little kids with their hands all over the rails waiting in the lines. And the lines just, you can't, once you're in line with people, you can't control them. You can't control their coughing, their sneezing, and people. I mean, I don't mean this mean. People are nasty. I mean, look at look at how many people. Look at how many people have been talking about how. Yeah, I, I mean, how many people didn't wash their hands after they went to the bathroom before this? That's yeah. disgusting. It is. I mean, it I is. mean, I, you couldn't. It's like we've had this conversation. People are talking about restaurants and stuff. I I don't know. It's gonna be a. It's gonna be an issue for me. It really is. I, I know this for an absolute fact. I. And I'm not one of the paranoid type people. I'm sort of in the middle. On, on the paranoia scale, I'm probably about a four. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to go into a restaurant where the doors are closed. I, I can't control the people around me. I don't. I mean, you know, Alan and I were talking about this before we started. How do you in, in a football stadium if you say, "Hey, social distancing rules apply"? All right, but how do you enforce them? They're, they're not going to be enforceable. And in a restaurant, you're going to. I mean, there's still people that come up to you in the grocery store or whatever, like, hey, how you doing? They want to shake your hand. You're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah. you can't. Con- tap. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, uh, I mean, I've, I've wondered about, like, you know, uh, press settings and stuff. I mean, media settings. We're so used to, to, like, media scrums. I don't think we'll have those anymore for at least for the foreseeable future. I wouldn't want to participate in one of them where there's 15 media people around the, the quarterback at Ole Miss talking to him for four minutes. I mean, that's the way we've always done the job. And I don't think, I don't think it can be done that way. And, and I catch myself saying, would I be comfortable going into a, a, a press box in an enclosed press box? Would I be comfortable in that press box for four hours on a Saturday, the way that I've done for 20 some odd years of my life? And the answer today is no. Yeah. I think, I think that, that, um, I think that this is the key to what I was saying is, you know, what you knew before this is not it it can't continue the way it was then. So in terms of, uh, in terms of the at Disney world, you're going to see a bunch of people out there with hand sanitizer, passing it out, telling, you know, yelling out, keep your distance, stay on the, stay on the X in line. And they're going to have hash marks where, you know, people are spread out enough. Um, I do agree with Martin that you're going to, the businesses who, who are going to be more in tune with these social guidelines for how to, you know, implement reopening in a safe way are going to be the ones that people are going to feel better about going to. Um, you know, I mean, I, there's going to be a lot of things that are still going to be hurt. I mean, at Disney world, I think people are going to go to Disney world and I think Disney world is, you know, what I know of them is they're thoughtful enough that they're going to be able to, do it in a way that makes people feel safe and makes people want to come because they're so customer service oriented. But I mean, think about like six flags. I mean, I've been on, yeah, six flags. I've been on uh, the, the, the Mississippi state fair, you know, yeah. I've been on four cruises and I can promise you, I will never go on another cruise. I mean, they're just, 
it's just a it's just a moving germ fest. You well, know? and not and to mention airports, that they that's the other thing that freaks me out is airports. And I'm I'm kind of like you, Neil. I mean, you know, I've got some tolerance, but I mean, airports are just nasty, you know, and people are everywhere, and you're gonna see TSA yelling, "Don't don't go past the hash mark," and you know. Uh, they're probably going to not let you touch the bins. And I mean, there's going to be all kinds of stuff like that's going to have to happen. Well, and the carnival executives, <clears throat> there was a pretty damning uh, news report that came out, you know, last week where they were saying the carnival executives knew that they had an issue um, and they just let the parties continue without saying anything until it kind of all, you know, exploded open. Uh, and I think, I think you're, spot i think cruises have probably lost uh a lot of confidence through through all this and i don't know i don't know how they come back i mean i'm sure they will <clears throat> maybe not all of them will come back but that's uh you know they're they i bet you they're probably the ones that are hurt the most through all of this with the travel sector um yeah i would agree with that and it's funny my the, wife I mean, won't get on a cruise. We're going to so. have to fly, right? We're going to I mean we're going to have to fly. It's just going to be different. I think the airlines from what I've seen of just the messages I've gotten, they're trying to be thoughtful about it, you know. Um so I mean, you're there's going to be some degree of travel obviously and there's just going to have to be some tolerance for it and people are going to have to do their part kind of staying away and stuff, but yeah, I don't know about cruises, man. That's uh, th I think you're right. I think they'll they'll suffer for the foreseeable for, yep. future for sure. I agree. And you know, and and air and air travel is so crucial to a, a global economy. And we could have probably a whole show on you know forecasting what we think a global economy looks like, not from a numbers perspective, but you know, I think there's a lot of anger and resentment throughout a bunch of country. Uh, oh, excuse me, throughout a bunch of countries. Um, you know, at China and the supply chain process, and I don't see how that's not yeah. a backlash. But you know, I, but still, air travel is is crucial to a to a global economy. So I think that air travel survives. You know, and it's just like it'll probably be. You know, after nine eleven, the way that we did traveling changed for forever. And I imagine we'll have a. You know, there will be a new one. There'll be a the whatever. I don't know what it is, but it will something will change the way we travel. Or yeah. The coronavirus changed the way we travel forever. I'm just not sure what that's going to look like going forward. Yeah, they'll probably, you know, what I would guess, particularly in the airplanes, is they'll develop a quick method for rapid decontamination where they'll bring a blower of, you know, some kind of disinfectant in there, close the thing down, blow it and disinfect it for 15 minutes. And, you know, you, the, the turn between flights will just have to, be a little increase longer. some yeah. and you know uh they'll make you probably wake you make you wear masks and make you squirt some hand sanitizer in your yeah hand before you get on the airplane and I mean, maybe you grab your snack like that you grab your snack at the gate they have the little snack card or something like that or you instead of being served by the you know flight oh, attendants yeah. you know maybe it's you I'm, grab your stuff before you get be on board yeah it'll be uh it'll be sitting in your seat you know for you or yeah. something like that where they where there's less just kind of person to person contact. And I wouldn't mind um, that. Yeah, and maybe it's you select your snack when you buy your ticket and it's sitting in your seat or something like that. I mean, I wouldn't mind that. Uh <laughs> bring your own snack. I mean bring your own snack, that's right. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that's the easy thing right now. I, I like I mean, to make I mean, things right, a little I mean, more complicated. <laughs> I mean, I catch myself now at the grocery store. It, I don't touch it until I know I want it. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I, and, and then, I mean, I just, you know, if you're in a, I, I wonder about hotels and stuff, you know, how comfortable are you going to be in a hotel when you walk into a hotel room? How comfortable, how confident are you going to be that that hotel room has been disinfected yeah. in a way that, no, no that doubt. You, you know, I mean, because we, you know, so <laughs> we're planning a vacation this summer. We had planned it before and it's a, it's a RV vacation, you know, so. Oh, that's cool. We hadn't canceled it yet because we're thinking, well, you know, at least it'll be, we can go into the RV and maybe, you know, wipe it down the best we can beforehand. But then it's just us in it for 10 days. So, um, but I, I think you're right. I mean, all these types of things, people are going to, it's going to be on the forefront of their minds of, uh, I mean, hotels is a perfect 
example. I mean, are you confident that that housekeeper wiped everything down that you're about to touch? I mean, think about the doorknobs and the, yeah. and the TV remote and the, the, the door handle to the the door handle to the micro the the microwave or the mini fridge or the I mean yep. the coat hangers. I mean, it's just like it's almost an impossible task. Yep. to think that you could clean all that stuff. Yeah. So what would so what would have to happen, Alan, between now and the, and what this whenever this date is to is it strictly a vaccine? Is it that simple? Is there anything else? Is there a treatment? Is there a, is there anything that's coming down the road that would ease some of the fears that people would have concerns for the lack of a better word? I think vaccine would help a lot. I think that um, I think that we're not going to see a a treatment per se uh, that's going to really be super effective. Um, I mean, we're investigating a lot of things, but uh, I don't think there'll be any kind of prophylaxis. I don't think that you're going to have a treatment that's going to be the, you know, oh, you just take this pill. Uh, not anytime soon. I mean, look, we just got something like that with the, with the flu and, uh, it doesn't even work that well. And we've known about the flu forever, you know, since the 1800s. So I don't think you're going to see anything like that rapidly. So I think it's the vaccine and then it's just the the spread of the virus, hopefully contained in a way that it's not massive. And hopefully it mutates in a way that it's less infective or causes less severe disease uh, in people and, it, and the impact of, you know, how many people get sick and die is, is blunted. I mean, uh, I think all those things together is what we have to kind of pray for. Yeah. And I know there was a, there was a lot of hope that Gilead had a, a treatment and then there was some, you know, I don't know that an accidental publishing yeah. of, of some yeah, incomplete a, information Red, from China and redemsevir is the name of that drug. I'm glad you said it. Cause I, I wasn't mean, even going to attempt to say it. <laughs> the initial, the initial study that was done was kind of lackluster. I, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not laying blame on any particular, but I do think that scientific evidence has to be taken into, uh, into account of where, where it comes from. And, um, you know, some of those studies that are coming out from the initial waves in Asia are not very well done studies and, so I, I think the jury's still out on all this stuff. Let me gotcha. ask you about this one, Alan. There's a couple of things I want to kind of get to, if you don't mind. This is, I'm reading from my Twitter. This is Ellen Carmichael. I'm not sure who Ellen is. Let's see. She's got a check mark, which doesn't necessarily mean anything on Twitter. <laughs> she's verified. She is, uh, she's, uh, works, I don't know. She's, she's, she appears to be fairly legitimate. She says, University of Miami of Florida has uh, concluded its preliminary COVID-19 study, which found that Approximately 165,000 Miami-Dade residents, or 6%, had antibodies, nearly 16 times the number of cases reported by the state health department. That puts the fatality rate, according to their math, at approximately 0.14%, which is uh, significantly lower than kind of the fatality rate that we'd heard about for a while. Does that, does that, Number one, you're just kind of your thoughts on that study. I know you haven't had a chance to even look at it, so it's impossible to have thoughts on it. But just if, if the death rate is the fatality rate is that low, does that change the calculus a little bit on, on how we move forward? So if we took the study, if we, if we take what you read at face value and we believe that the um, we believe that the people that had antibodies actually had uh, SARS-CoV-2, then I would say that that case fatality rate is similar to the to influenza, and um, and we're dealing with something that is three times as infectious, but about as deadly. Uh, so if it's three times as infectious as the flu, the flu kills um, probably yearly in the United States between three and 500,000 people just at baseline. So, you know, you're probably looking, if it's three times as infectious as the flu, you'd probably be looking at um, 
you know, overall, if this thing recurred yearly and we didn't have an effective vaccine, a fair number of deaths. But it, it, at some point, it becomes baseline, you know, noise for people, and it's no longer this massive like pandemic. It becomes more endemic. Um, but the, the skepticism I have about those types of numbers are that we know there are five different strains of coronavirus that circulate normally that just cause colds and things. And these various antibodies tests do have cross-reactivity to those viruses. And so I'm not confident that, that those antibodies aren't to another virus now. We'll, we will at some point get a pretty specific antibody test and then we'll get some real numbers. But these preliminary things that are coming out, those antibody tests are just, they're not what people want them to be, not yet. The other thing, on the, on the other side of this, the extreme, the uh, Washington Post has a story out today about, um, and they admit it's a small sampling, but that, there's, that the medical community is beginning to see uh, more COVID-related strokes in people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, have have yeah. you, you heard anything about that? And, and what, what are some, if for any, we're out there, we should be doing some sort of a public service here. What are some signs of, very early signs of, hey, I, I might be having a stroke or someone, one of my loved ones might be having a stroke? Hmm. Yeah, so there, there are some emerging reports that there are patients that have uh, COVID-19 that um, it, it does cause a, what's called a coagulopathy, which is kind of increased clotting in the, in the blood, in the body. Um, what we see it in the hospital, the people are obviously sick. I mean, they obviously have the syndrome of COVID-19, um, but there are some reports out there where it may be that people have it that don't have as many symptoms, but they get the they get the coagulopathy, the hypercoagulability, and uh, that's causing strokes in because you're getting clotting in those little blood vessels in the brain, and it's happening some to some degree more in young people than older people. So uh, that's a real thing. I mean, there's there's been many reports about that in medical literature uh, in terms of what you should be looking for. I mean, I think the I think people have been scared to go to the hospital, uh, and I understand why. Um, but if you think you're having a heart attack or a stroke, heart attack, obviously chest pain, uh, radiating into the arm, you get sweaty, uh, you feel it in your back or your neck or your shoulders. Um, you know, don't, don't take any chances because we are still seeing heart attacks, strokes. Uh, if you get suddenly you have weakness in an arm or a leg, uh, difficulty speaking or garbled speech flat, uh, uh, flat face, your face goes numb or paralyzed on one side. Those are things to kind of look for in you or a loved one that can kind of signal the possibility of a stroke. So we do need to see you for some things, you know, and you shouldn't be scared. The thing about hospitals, and I've said this many times over the next week, I really honestly believe this you're more likely to get it out in the community than you are at a hospital because we're taking so many precautions to keep people safe and isolated uh, in hospitals that you shouldn't really be scared to go to a hospital. Are there going to be people in that hospital that have it? Yes, uh, probably so. But like I said, we, we really are taking extraordinary precautions to keep those populations separate and to decrease the possibility of any type of uh, cross-contamination, whereas that's not going on at Walmart or Kroger or Sam's Club, and you're probably much more likely to, to interact with the virus on an inanimate object in those places than you would be at a hospital. Yeah, I have, and, you know, one of the things we've talked about, um, you know, from the hospital and getting at the hospital to one of the things, you know, Mississippi seems to be, we always, we always lead in the areas where you don't want to lead, right? It's all, we're always, we're best at being last and we're worst at being best. Um, but one of the things that, you know, your crew and your team, and I know that it's, you know, bigger than, than just, just you, that it's, you know, the whole UMC community, um, 
you know, we got our, our, our governor was on uh, national news, the MSNBC, um, I guess it was Thursday or Friday. Uh, and there was some really, there was some really great things that I was, I was impressed and I, you know, kind of got that pride for Mississippi because we don't often have, uh, have that where we're able to, to, you know, be leaders in something, but, you know, it seems like you guys really were proactive um, in in figuring out a way to you know not wait on the federal government to get us testing or not wait on the federal government for resources, and we were able. You guys aggra- aggressively attacked, um, you know, trying to trying to test, and you know, I think the correct me if I'm wrong. The stats that they were using was you know we kind of followed the South Korea model, but we ended up testing you know like four times the amount of people per capita. Um, than South Korea did, and and we're kind of leading the pack in that. So I want to give you an attaboy and a kudos too. But um, we can you can you chat just a minute too about you know what did you guys do different than the rest of the states um, with regards to testing and creating a test? Yeah, well, I think we had a couple things going for us. Number one, we were a couple weeks behind you know some of these hard hit areas, so we had. We had a little bit more time to prepare and, um, you know, t- to create uh, an internal test, to develop an internal test. And um, there's that. And then as a rural state, you know, we weren't we weren't dealing with the degree of population density and therefore rapidity of spread that some of these other places were dealing with. And then the last thing is we do have, you know, UMC has uh, is got a lot of in a lot of ways has stood has been a sleeping giant that stood up and said you know we're not gonna we're not gonna get run over by this thing and come alongside the the state the state department of health and um you know partnered and said you know let's let's do the best we can for the state and not kind of focused on just our operations or other people so yeah we pretty rapidly stood up a a, a in-house test that complemented the Department of Health testing. And that was really beneficial uh, to be able to do more testing per capita than a lot of other places were, like I said, because we have a less dense population and a smaller population, we were able to do as many tests as some places, but we have fewer citizens. When you do more testing, you find cases more rapidly, you can isolate and therefore prevent spread a lot more rapidly. And so, because we're a few weeks behind in terms of the, the virus getting here and because we uh, acted pretty quickly uh, and because we have a less dense population, all those things work together yep. to allow us to, uh, you know, have, you know, a really good, robust response to uh, the virus. And I do think it really, really made a difference, uh, at least in terms of the volume that we're seeing presently. And um, it just goes to show you that, you know, no matter what your opinion is about small, rural, southern, whatever, you know, we we all we have resources in these places that when we get together, I mean, we can we can make a huge difference. And, you know, and there's some benefits uh, to living in in places that that can do those types of things and do them in a in a thoughtful way. Yeah, I read a, another pretty damning article. It was funny. It was a couple of days before the the you know the news came out, or when our governor kind of t- talked about where we were, and you know, and I don't remember. I think it was actually in. I do remember it was in the Economist, which I read on a regular basis. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. And they were talking about you know that the South was really uh, was going to be a, a, a the deep South was going to be a place that was um, an unexpected. Uh, awful outbreak and and they were they were talking more they were saying you know they've closed so many rural hospitals and healthcare is bad and health is bad and you know I was reading that and I was like god man they're kind of I mean they're lumping us all together <clears throat> and I realized that you know from a demographic standpoint you know we probably are we are more unhealthy than you know than other parts of the US we have you know uh we have we lead in all the places you don't want to lead and then it was it was kind of refreshing to the, on the turn, you know, it comes out and says, you know, we're, we're leading the nation for a state that got no resources from federal government with, you know, with additional tests. And, you know, and I'm sure that the, 
person in the economist that wrote the articles probably based out of London and just looking at stats and, but it seems like the real world, the real world fight that's happening is totally different than what, you know, people are, uh, giving their hypothesis on and, you know, in, in an, in a, in a magazine like the economist. Yeah. I I think that the thing that's been kind of inspiring to me through all this is, uh, you know, it is true. We got, we're rural, right. We got critical access hospitals. A lot of them have gone out of business. They're struggling, whatever. What we saw was every, the, you know, the healthcare community, the public health service and the healthcare community kind of came together and said, all right, we got to, we've got to figure this out and help each other. And so what we saw is, you know, you get these patients at a small hospital that doesn't have resources. Don't try to keep them there. Just send them to us, and we're not going to give you a hard time for that. We're just going to do the right thing and take the patient and take care of business and move on. And uh, I think we saw a lot of the, like we've seen in, in the general population of people trying to do their part and staying at home yeah. in the healthcare community, a lot of these kind of previously built walls and barriers and, you know, things that uh, were there to make sure that, you know, you had the, you know, made the most money or whatever, all those things we kind of saw in fall, those, those walls were broken down and people just came together and said, we're going to do the right thing to get through it. And so I, I think that that's probably helped a lot for, uh, you know, not seeing what people predicted we would see in the South, in yeah. the rural South. Let me tell you guys real quick before we uh, start to wrap up. This podcast is also brought to you by the refrigeration company, TRC, owned and operated by Jeremy Watler, who's been in the refrigeration field for more than 20 years, including five as a national service manager. At TRC, they understand that great service means being responsive. Their highly trained, responsible, and dedicated staff are available 24-7 to ensure your complete satisfaction. TRC specializes in ammonia refrigeration, but they work on any other HFC, HCFC, or CO2 systems. They're building winning relationships with customers in baking, cold storage warehouses, ice production facilities, and facilities serving dairy, food, poultry, and catfish processing. They're based in Spanish Fort, Alabama, but they're licensed in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and South Carolina as well. They can handle all of your company's refrigeration needs, including installation, fabrication, service, compressor rebuilds, ammonia detection, calibration, vibration analysis, and more. To learn more, call Jeremy Wattler, 251-348-8533, or email him at jeremy at therefrigco.com. You can follow TRC at The Refrigeration Company on Facebook or at their website, therefrigco.com. Podcast also sponsored by Elite Dental Care with offices throughout West Tennessee in Germantown, Jackson, and Trenton. They've got five doctors with more than 75 years of combined experience, and with their combined areas of expertise, the uh, doctors at Elite Dental Care offer convenience along with the latest in technology. It's a family practice. The entire family can be seen no matter age or, or, or a severity of problems. They uh, focus on staying up to date on all the latest technology, including intraoral cameras, digital x-rays and impressions, 3D x-rays and more, TVs and radios in every room, giving patients the comforts of home, all while they receive the most modern technological treatment. Elite Dental Care also offers conscious sedation and IV sedation for patients that are anxious or scared or for those that might not be fearful but just have a lot of work to do and can't afford to take time off work for multiple visits. With sedation, Elite Dental Care is able to get much more work done in one visit, ultimately saving the patient time and money. So if you're looking for a dentist in West Tennessee or the Memphis area, get in touch with Dr. Mark Harper, Dr. Clint Buchanan, and Dr. Mike Farah at Elite Dental Care. To reach them, go to EliteDentalCare.com or follow them on Facebook and or Instagram. Awesome. Uh, I kind of had an ADD moment, guys, and I totally blanked out on (laughs) what we were talking about before we went to to pay our bills. We were talking about how we were leading the the kind of leading the country in in stats, and I mean, and I kind of wanted to give us an attaboy and give you know Alan, give you know you guys the UMC community and and add a boy too, because it's not, you know, it's not often that we get to talk about the things that, that we're doing that's leading the nation and, you know, and really anything good. So it's, uh, you know, it is great. And I think that's one of the things about the South too, you know, j- not just Mississippi, the deep South is, you know, when bad stuff happens, man, whether it's Katrina or tornadoes or, or whatever, I mean, we seem to just kind of 
all come together as a community and we, you know, drop all the BS of, you know, who's better than who and whatnot. And we just all pile in and, you know, and, and work together to solve problems. And, you know, that's one thing I do love about our state and, and the deep South. And you're, it looks like we're seeing it in the medical medical community as well. Yeah. And I, you know, the other thing to point out to people that I think probably got lost in all this um, mess with COVID-19 is we had the third largest ESF four yeah. category four uh, tornado on Easter Sunday it was two and a quarter miles wide yep. and went for 90 miles on the ground uh, and killed 11 people, you know, and we <laughs> unfortunately had to respond to that too. So, I mean, you know, Mississippi for everything it's been through probably, you know, really has come together and pulled through in a lot of ways that other states might not have been able to do. Yeah. I saw that we were, we had like, we've had like 77 tornadoes on ground year to date, which were the highest by a long shot from, you know, any other state, which is, you know, it's kind of wild. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, time for bad storms and whatnot, but we have, we've also had them, what, two weekends back to back or not considering this weekend as we're taping, but you know, two Sundays back to back of, of really awful, um, awful storms. Um, anything else, Martin? No, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that we got to spend some time with you, Alan. I know you're, you're a really busy guy and I got to ask some of the, <clears throat> the questions I wanted to ask and, um, you know, I guess it does, this has been the more positive and uplifting, uh, <laughs> of the three that we've done. It seems like we're, you know, some of the things that you, that the state officials ask us to do have, have worked and seem to be working. I, you know, I just hope that we don't, I hope we don't go backwards. <clears throat> I just hope we keep, we keep moving forward. No doubt. And I think, you know, I think that, uh, we're just dealing with rapidly changing situations. So, you know, hopefully we'll continue to, to have more positive news and, you know, we're able to, the more we go through it, the more we learn and we're, we are going to be able to get back to some semblance of a routine that is better for everybody's mental health and uh, well-being uh, yes. more so than just being cramped up and everything. So I appreciate you guys having me on and maybe the next time we're on, we'll have cheery new, more cheery news. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, thanks so much for giving up hour and a half of your weekend here. So thanks so much. And I uh, hope you stay safe, stay well, and we look forward to talking to you again, Alan. Sounds great. Thanks guys. Indeed. For, uh, for Dr. Alan Jones, for Martin Palomo, I'm Neil McCready. That does it for this edition of Mind on My Money presented by Pinnacle Trust. Don't forget you can check out Pinnacle Trust at pintrust.com. That's P-I-N-N trust.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. Talk to you soon.